0: Peter chapter 3, we're going to be reading verses 13 through 17 this morning. The reality of it is, is that suffering for Christians is a fact of life. We may have been spared from that in North America for the past few hundred years, but as I look around at the world that we live in, as I hear other pastors preach and evaluate the culture that we live in, the consensus is, is that we will be facing more and more hardship in the days to come. Unless the Lord steps in and does an amazing work to transform our communities and our society, it's not going to get easy for us. We as a church try to, on a regular basis, be praying for those saints around the world who share our faith but not our freedoms. And I wanted to share with you something that happened in Burkina Faso just a few weeks ago. On May 25th, in a village in north, northern Burkina Faso, a pastor and at least one other believer in that village lost their lives. The village came under attack around 4 p.m., One of the local church leaders was able to share with Open Doors Ministry that the terrorists encircled the village, shooting in the air to create panic, and then they entered a compound where they shot and killed two people. A third was there and fled and got to the pastor's compound. The jihadists followed him to the church leader's compound. They went in and they shot the young man and the pastor dead in front of the pastor's wife. Pastor Jonas Yarrow, 39, served the apostolic church in the village for eight years and leaves behind a wife and three children. This is not an unusual circumstance in so many countries around the world. It's just an example of the fact that Christians face suffering. Suffering. And Peter's not ignorant to this. We've already talked about it as Peter is instructing the saints in Asia Minor, in in a very specific region where the the believers were dispersed. They had already begun to experience some suffering. Now, it wasn't necessarily the empire-wide persecution of Christians at this point, But nonetheless, they were experiencing suffering. We've been talking about the fact that they were being marginalized. They were being ostracized. They were experiencing hardship. And Peter writes to them to instruct them, to encourage them, to challenge them. And actually, as we finish up the book of 1 Peter really it's going to be peter's main theme moving forward how do we live as christians in a world where suffering against the saints is normal and peter starts right off with a question and before we read that question as we look at verse 13 the first thing I want us to see from this passage is that we, and these believers specifically, because Peter was writing to them, but we can draw from this passage this principle as well, and that is we need to have the right perspective on suffering. We actually, probably more than saints around the world at any other time, need to have the right perspective on suffering because We as Christians really don't in North America understand what it means to suffer for Christ's sake. We have done everything that we can to avoid any sort of suffering. We have been blessed to live in a culture where suffering for Christ is really not a normal thing. It's been the abnormal thing. It's been the exception, not the rule. And yet we really do need to have a biblical understanding and a biblical perspective on suffering and so as we think about that statement let's look at what paul or what peter says in first peter chapter 3 verse 13 he says this but who then will harm you if you are devoted to what is good now you you gotta maybe think along the same lines as me right if we're talking about having the right perspective on suffering this is kind of an odd question to ask if we're talking about suffering peter jumps right in and he asks a rhetorical question and i think most of us would probably have the same answer to that rhetorical question if we look at the question again who then will harm you if you're devoted to what is good what do you think the rhetorical answer to that question is somebody yelled out who's going to harm you if you want to do good if you're devoted to too good the answer would be Nobody. That would be the the normal, honest answer for us. If I'm dedicated to doing what's good, I'm doing good to the people around me, I'm doing good to the people in my culture, I'm doing good to the people in my family, in my workplace, in my school, who would want to harm me? And yet he goes on in verse 14 and says, but even if you should suffer for righteousness, you're blessed. So Peter asks what seems to be an obvious rhetorical question, but then he turns around and says, but if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, and he's going to continue on through chapter 4 and chapter 5 and talk about the fact that Christians do suffer. And we know that Christians do suffer. So what's up with the rhetorical question? Well, I think it's important that we, in order to gain the right perspective on suffering, we really look at Peter's question in verse 13 in light of what he just got done saying in verse verse 12. Look at it. Peter says this look, we need to have the right perspective because we need to keep it in light of eternity. We need to keep it in light of who God is. In verse 12, he says this, because the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and his ears are open to their prayers, but the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. See, He's saying, look, it it seems obvious that if we do good that nobody's going to harm us, but we know the reality that even though we do good, there are those that will harm us at times. There are times when we will suffer for righteousness' sake. So how do we endure that suffering? How do we encounter that suffering? We encounter it in light of the fact that we serve Almighty God, whose eyes and ears are attuned to the believer. And his face is against those who do evil when i read that rhetorical question my first thought honestly went to accounts like this one from, Bur- from burkina faso my thoughts immediately went to a passage in matthew 23 that i've been reading through in my own personal quiet time i, I started thinking about john the baptist who was beheaded for opposing an immoral marriage he stood up against King Herod and said, Look, the marriage that you're in right now, totally immoral. God is not pleased with that at all. And it resulted in his head being cut off. Or James, who was beheaded for preaching the gospel and being the leader in the church of Jerusalem. Or Peter and Paul, who were imprisoned, and ultimately both of those died as martyrs for standing for the cause of Christ. Matthew 23, verses 30, 29 to 34, Jesus is pronouncing woes or, or um, condemnation on the Pharisees because they were hypocrites. But this is what he says. He's talking about the prophets through the Old Testament. He says, woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, hypocrites. You build the tombs of the prophets and decorate the graves of the righteous. And you say, if we had lived in the days of our ancestors, we wouldn't have taken part in them with them in shedding the blood of the prophets. So you testify against yourselves so that you are the descendants of those who murdered the prophets. Fill up then the measure of your ancestors' sin. He goes on, he says, snakes, brood of vipers, how can you escape the coming condemnation to hell? This is why I'm sending you prophets and sages and scribes, and some of them you will kill and crucify, and some of them you will flog in your synagogues and pursue from town to town. Jesus knew how the prophets were going to be treated. He knew how his disciples were going to be treated. He points out that in the Old Testament, the prophets of God were still killed and abused for standing up for what God told them to say and pronounce. The reality of it is, is that followers of the Lord Jesus Christ will experience suffering. But we need to experience it in light of who God is. And that God is not turning a blind eye to our cries, to our prayers. He's not shutting his eyes to what's going on. We need to realize that in light of eternity, God is sovereign over all of this. And that God has a bigger picture in mind that we can't see but that we need to trust him in the light of our sufferings there's nothing that will happen to us unless it is part of god's sovereign will for us And we need to take comfort in that peter goes on though he says look even if we suffer for righteousness sake and by the way peter is making a solid assumption for believers the assumption is believers you are going to do what is good you are going to devote yourself to living faithfully for Christ and doing what is good and sometimes doing what is good is going to result in suffering but he says in verse 14 but even if you should suffer for righteousness sake you are blessed Not you may be blessed Kind of hope that you're blessed. It's a possibility that you're blessed. No, he says, you are blessed. I wonder if when Peter is writing this under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, he is not hearkening back to the messages that he heard Jesus preach when he walked with Jesus. Like when Jesus says in Matthew 5, verses 10 through 12, blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for the kingdom of heaven is theirs. Jesus went on, he says, you are blessed when they insult you and persecute you and falsely say every evil against you because of me. Be glad and rejoice because your reward is great in heaven. For that is how they persecuted the prophets who went before you. Peter's encouraging these believers by saying, "Look, even if you do suffer because of righteousness' sake, God will bless you." There's an inherent blessing to suffering for Christ's sake, and we are reminded that our reward is great in heaven. Do I know what that reward is? No, I don't know. For some who' lose their lives, for the sake of Christ, there is a crown that is given specifically for that. We know that the crowns that we receive, we will cast at Jesus' feet in our worship of Jesus. What I do know is this, that we will enjoy eternal life with Christ. We will enjoy the restoration of creation the way that it was originally meant to be. I firmly believe that we will spend eternity not just worshiping God, but enjoying His creation, getting to know Him better. All the benefits that come with just spending time with God and getting to know Him. What is the chief end of man, according to the Westminster Confession, to glorify God and enjoy Him forever? I don't know about you, but to me, that's a pretty awesome reward. We have that in store for us as believers in Jesus Christ. But you know, Peter doesn't end there. He doesn't stop there. The other thing that he says about having the right perspective on eternity or on on suffering and keeping it in light of who God is in eternity, we see it as he quotes in verse 15 excuse me, at the end of verse 14, he quotes from Isaiah chapter 8 verse 12. He says this. He says, Do not fear what they fear or be intimidated. Now your version of Scripture may read it this way. Do not fear them. I think that this translation actually has a better rendering because it is a direct quote from Isaiah. Because in Isaiah chapter 8, verses 11 through 12, this is what God says to the prophet Isaiah. You need to know that God says this to Isaiah because of the circumstances that were going on. The king of Aram and the king of Israel had gathered their troops to attack the king of Judah and the nation of Judah. They were arrayed, ready for attack. And if you've watched any of the, you know, the, the big epic movies, I think of you know, Lord of the Rings as, as the good guys are kind of walled up in their fortress and the enemy is arrayed along the open fields ready to attack. And you know, the guys on the wall are looking out at this massive army ready to just kind of roll over them. You can understand what it would have felt like, what the thought process would have been We're not gonna make it through this. Look at the vast numbers that they've got against us. Look at the army that they've got. We're never gonna make it out of this. And the king of Judah, he was afraid for what was gonna happen. The people of Judah were afraid at what was gonna happen and yet God says to Isaiah, for this is what the Lord said to me with great power to keep me from going the way of this people. He was wrestling just like the people where he was wrestling with, "We're not going to make it out of this. we're going to die." Oh, the suffering's going to be massive." And then God says this: "Do not call everything a conspiracy that these people say is a conspiracy, and do not fear what they fear. Do not be terrified. What's God saying to Isaiah? "I'm in control of all things." i'm sovereign over all things i'm almighty god don't fear the way that other people fear you don't need to And don't be intimidated and peter's saying you know a christian don't fear the way that other people fear because you serve almighty god we see how that is built upon in our next section but what I want to say is this. We can be fearless because we are under the sovereign hand of Almighty God. And Peter was likely thinking of another statement that he heard Jesus say as he was writing these words in Matthew chapter 10 verse 28 where Jesus says to his disciples, don't fear those who kill the body but are not able to kill the soul. Rather, fear him who is able to destroy both soul and body in hell. See, The worst that man can do to us is take our life. But God Almighty could send us to eternal hell. But as believers in the Lord Jesus Christ, we've been saved from our sin. We are not destined for hell any longer. We are destined for everlasting life with Jesus Christ. And so you know what? The worst that somebody can do to us as believers is take our lives. And then what happens absent from the body is present with the lord paul says for me to die to live is christ and to die is gain that was paul's attitude towards life and death he's like it's good for me i can share christ with people if i live but if i die i get to be with christ he had the right perspective on his suffering. Number two, we need to have the right posture in suffering. Follow along with me in verses uh, 15 and 16. This is what Peter says to the believers. If we're going to have the right perspective on suffering, we need to have the right posture in suffering. He says, but in your hearts regard Christ the Lord as holy. I actually don't prefer this translation of Scripture because of the word regard. I really prefer what the king james would have used sanctify I think if you have an esv it's the word honor but really it is the word sanctifier to set apart in your hearts set apart christ the lord as holy in order for us to have the right perspective on suffering and the right posture on suffering we need to set apart christ the lord in our hearts as holy we need to see God for who He is. I believe that this starts with a constant confession of sin. Believers, if we have sin in our lives, we need to see sin the way God sees sin. He hates sin, He despises it. He wants it to have no part in our lives. He knows that it brings destruction, it brings ruin, it corrupts, it decays. It wreaks havoc and chaos in our lives. God doesn't want that. It destroys relationships. It hinders our fellowship with Him. God says, you know what? You need to get that sin confessed and out of your life. Repent of it. Confess it. So that we can walk closely with Him. If we're honest and say, well, how how do I know for sure if such and such is a particular sin? Well, the Holy Spirit of God, if He's indwelling us is going to bring, a, bring deep conviction over sin. But as we read the word of God, time after time after time, God is going to confront us with sin in our lives. And the Holy Spirit's going to use the word of God to convict us of our sin and bring us to that place where we say, God, I repent of my sin. Forgive me of my sin Let me walk closely in fellowship with you. If we're going to sanctify Christ as holy in our lives, we need to confess sin. We need to be walking closely with God. We need to see God as holy. And as a holy God, we need to honor him. I love how this was worded. Wearsby says it this way, that we are to put Christ on the throne of our lives. And he needs to be the one who is in complete control. God gave the same instruction to Isaiah in Isaiah 8, 13. We read Isaiah 8, 11, and 12, but in verse 13, he says the very same thing to Isaiah that Peter's saying to these believers. This is what God says to Isaiah You are to regard only the Lord of armies or the Lord Almighty as holy, only he should be feared. Only he should be held in awe. See, oftentimes we look at our sufferings and those that might be the ones that are the result of or the cause of our sufferings, and we stand in awe of them as if they have all the power. Instead of looking at Almighty God and saying, no, I'm going to stand in awe of God because he's got all the power. What can man do to me? Really nothing in light of eternity. We need to sanctify Christ as holy in our hearts. Christ needs to be on the throne of our lives. When we do that, as we do that, I believe that we're able to do the next thing that Peter says to the believers. He says this, be ready to give a defense. He says, be ready or ready at any time to give a defense to anyone who asks for a reason for the hope that is in you. how often we to be ready anytime to who are we supposed to be ready to give a defense anyone I don't know about you but that pretty well sets the groundwork for how I'm supposed to be living as a Christian I need to be ready that at any time I have to give in a defense for the hope that's in me I have to be ready to give it to anybody that asks there is an aspect of formal or informal when it comes to this defense The word for defense is the word apologia. In Greek, it's where we get the the word apologetics from. Apologetics is not saying that we're sorry for what we believe in. It is meaning giving a defense for, to back up what I believe with the reasons for why I believe it. Oftentimes we as Christians look at this and we've heard it. in oh, apologetics, I'm not an apologist. Like that's a specific ministry somebody's calling somebody else to. No. Paul's not, or Peter's not talking to a group of apologists here. Hey, for those of you that are called to apologetics ministry, I want you to be ready for this. Peter's saying, as a believer, I should always be able to and be ready to give a defense for the hope that's in me. When I'm going through suffering, it will prompt questions by people who know me well, who don't know Christ as Savior. Hey, how can you experience what you're experiencing the way that you're experiencing it? How can you have peace and calmness and joy in the midst of all this suffering? Hey, I'd love to tell you how I have hope. I have hope in Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ saved me from my sin. I'm gonna spend eternity with God. I wanna tell you all about it. You know, I'd like to tell you how you can trust Jesus Christ to save you from your sin. Did you know that you're a sinner? Do you know that your sin is separating you from god for all eternity but you could actually have salvation from your sin in jesus christ it opens doors of opportunity for us to witness in the midst of our suffering and we need to be ready with that answer we need to be ready to witness for jesus christ to anybody who will ask for the reason for the hope that's in us could be formally like Paul and Peter who stood before the emperor and gave a defense for their faith could be informally. Somebody in your neighborhood who knows that you're going through suffering and they're not a believer and they can't figure out how it is that you're walking through that suffering the way that you are. You're saying, hey, I'd love to tell you how. It's Jesus Christ. We need to be ready. It's important that we understand the word hope here. For anyone who asks for the reason for the hope that is in you, hope, it is faith in the future of God's salvation. It is a sure hope, not wishful thinking. It is based on Jesus' redemption and resurrection. I have confidence that I'm going to spend eternity with God for In his presence, why? Because Jesus Christ died on the cross and saved me from my sin. And because he rose again three days later, I will be resurrected. With a body that's incorruptible and undefiled and that will not fade away. I love what Edmund Clowney says about hope. Hope is the form that faith takes under the threat of death. I read that again hope is the form that faith takes under the threat of death none of us want to actually think about that but that's the reality during suffering god provides opportunities for us to share with others the saving faith in jesus christ i would be a i would be at odds with what god wants me to do if i didn't say right now if you are here this morning and you don't know jesus christ as your savior scripture makes it abundantly clear that you're dead in your trespasses and sins that if you were to stand before the almighty god the holy god that we're talking about here you would be condemned because of your sin in fact scripture says that you're condemned already the only way that you're not going to experience that condemnation is by putting your faith and trust in jesus christ god the son who died on the cross of calvary to save you you can experience that salvation you can experience eternal life with christ if you would trust him today to save you i implore you to do that next thing that peter says this is keeping a clear conscience if we are keeping Christ, setting apart Christ as holy in our lives, and we're ready to give that defense, and we're going to give that defense to anybody who asks. We're to do it keeping a clear conscience. Oh, I need to step back. He says this, we do it with gentleness and respect, literally fear. We have the proper fear of God so that we are respectful to those who ask. This is consistent with what, Paul, or what Peter says in verse 9 where he says, don't repay insult for insult or evil for evil, but give a blessing. Keep in mind the objective here, that if we are to be willing to answer the questions that come and give the reason for the hope that is in us in a gentle and respectful way, we are to do that because if we keep the the, the goal, the objective in mind, what are we here for? We're here to win lost souls for Jesus. If I respond in the most obnoxious, mean-spirited way, one that's not honoring to God, it's contrary to what we've already been taught, even in this book. But we're not going to win anybody for Jesus that way. We need to do it with gentleness and with respect. As we do that, we keep a clear conscience. Our conscience either excuses us or accuses us in light of God's truth. Wouldn't it be wonderful to be able to stand before God and say, God, I can say with a clear conscience that as I was enduring suffering, as people were coming to me and asking me about the hope that I have in Jesus Christ, I respectfully and gently shared with them the saving work of Jesus. I didn't respond with the nastiness that they gave to me. I didn't say hateful things back to them. I didn't demand my rights and say, I got a right to this. But I respectfully and gently share Jesus Christ with them. You can stand before God saying, I I did what you called me to do, God. Paul says, Yet do the, or Peter says, yet do this with gentleness and respect, keeping a clear conscience, so that when they accuse you, it will happen. It's not an if. So when, when they accuse you, those who disparage your good conduct in Christ will be put to shame. For it is better to suffer for doing good if if that should be God's will than for doing evil. The last thing I want us to see is this. We need to understand the right purpose for our suffering. See, suffering is good, excuse me, suffering for good is God's will. Peter says, if God should will it, if it's God's will, well, if we experience it, then it's God's will. And so we need to understand that if we're going through suffering, it's because it's God's will for us. Why? Because maybe we'll have an opportunity to lead people to Christ and that there will be more people who will enter the kingdom of heaven. Maybe it'll be like James says, where the suffering that we face will produce endurance. It will test our faith and it'll produce endurance in our lives. It will strengthen our faith. It'll strengthen our relationship with God Almighty. And it ultimately glorifies God. I love how John Piper sums up the verses that we've just worked through. He says this. This is kind of his summary, and he draws from chapter 2, verse 15, and chapter 2, verse 12, to bring this to fruition. He says this, in our sufferings, as Christians, we honor Christ. That's the way it should work. In our sufferings, we honor Christ. As we honor Christ, we have hope. Our hope produces a fearlessness in our lives so that when we are asked about our hope, we can give reasons for the hope that we have in us, which actually causes reviling and slander at times from people who don't believe. But if we maintain gentleness, it brings shame to the people who slander us, but on, on, uh, ultimately will silence them according to chapter 2, verse 15, and then the end result is that they will glorify God at His coming, chapter 2, verse 12. See, one day every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So maybe the people that are reviling me and slandering me now aren't giving God glory. But one day they will. But what I know is this, is that if I endure suffering the way that God calls me to endure suffering, I am glorifying God. And I know that if I'm going through it, it's because God's got a greater plan and purpose for me. See, persecutions will come. Likely coming sooner than we think may come against us as individuals in school or work or in our families or among our neighbors. Local Christian camp just recently had an article by the CBC written against them because they were standing up for biblical truth with one of their camps that they were going to be putting on this summer. And somebody saw it. And somebody slandered them. And somebody went to the police. And somebody went to the media. And they've gotten all sorts of backlash. And camp season hasn't even started yet. It's coming. It's not going away. The primary battleground I think that most Christian organizations and churches are going to face is on the issue of sexuality and gender identity. It's not going anywhere. We're in the midst of a month where people are celebrating it for a whole month. It's going to be in our faces the whole month. And as we stand up as Christians and say, you know what, I believe what the Bible says about this. The God-man made male and female. That's it, men and women. All of a sudden now, something as simple as that brings slander and reviling. Suffering's coming. Might be individually, might be towards the church by our society and our government and other faiths. So how are we going to face this suffering? In light of what this passage said, we can face suffering with security. Why? Because, you know what? God's going to enable it to spread the gospel in a greater, more dynamic way, and because God's in control of all things. And I can trust God in that. And so I can be secure in my sufferings.